SBS Radio. I'm Kerry Lee Harding and thanks for your company today right here on NITV Radio. Well, it has been three months since thousands of residents were forced from their homes by devastating flooding in the New South Wales Northern Rivers region. Temporary housing is slowly being provided and the disaster is taking its toll on many. Last week, a parliamentary inquiry was listening to some of the stories on the ground as it was investigating the responses to the worst flooding ever recorded in the region. As Lindy Karen reports for NITV's The Point program, people are showing incredible resilience and strength as they look into the future. This caravan park on Bunjalung country in Ballina is home to flood victims from across the region. Teresa Anderson is one of many Cabbage Tree Island residents who have sought refuge here. This is my fourth time I've moved and I actually feel comfortable here because I, I know there's family and the community here. They're a tight-knit community supporting each other, but many are feeling dislocated. Like our elders, they like they lost and they just go, I want to go home, I just want... And we see them walking out of our, their vans around about one or two o'clock at night saying, I want to go back to Cabo. That's mainly hit there. That's under your house, That's is it? That's under yeah. your house. Being divided and here, there and everywhere, we're just not strong enough. It's the connection that we, you know, keeps us strong. So that's a school where there's trucks everywhere. Three months on, the continuing upheaval is wearing everyone down. Oh, it's just so hard because it it's, takes a toll on our health. You know, our kids are suffering. They go to school and they actually cry. And, you know, we try to be strong for them, but we, we just can't be strong for them because we, you know, we are suffering too. I mean, I'm, I'm not so well. I, ever since this happened, um, I've been at the doctors and my doctor's been, <laughs> she's really good. She's hunting me down to say, you need to look after number one and that's you. And, you know, and I'm trying to be strong for others and family and stuff, but it's just so hard. The small community of Cabbage Tree Island went under in February. Every single home was inundated and destroyed. Some of the residents recently returned to Cabo to see the damage and say goodbye to their homes. One of them is Georgina Anderson. It was, you know, devastating seeing, like, the whole island affected. It was pretty much like a ghost town. A lot of our effects, you know, still in the house. Some of them were gone, you know, and just, yeah, it was, it was pretty hectic. Lost pretty much everything. I was only able to grab, like, you know, photos and stuff, documents, like my mother's birth certificate, her death certificate, same with my father's. Georgina Anderson is looking forward to moving into a temporary village in nearby Wardell, where Cabo residents will be back together. I miss uh, the sound of the kids, like the motorbikes, you know, um, like, you know, uh, family, like a lot of us are scattered pretty much everywhere, so it'd be good to be all together and, you know, um, to see everyone again. The nearby city of Lismore is also eerily quiet. But the community hub at Koori Mail, where locals can get help, 
is still busy. Naomi Moran is the Quarry Mill General Manager. It's still with us. Um, the event that unfolded and the, the many layers of, of trauma that people are experiencing, we certainly feel that as well. So we still have a, a great sense of responsibility to make sure that we're looking after people. Now Memoran shows us around the storage of necessities in the newspaper's basement. Donations come in here, we have our sorting area here and then we just allocate them to um, the different, different shelves. In the newspaper's basement, people drop off donations to a community food bank. Across the road, a team of volunteers is preparing hot meals. And we still have those people coming here uh, looking for help and, and requiring assistance. So um, certainly not over by any means and we'll certainly still be here by their side every step of the way. Naomi Moran says the plight of the Northern Rivers has hit a nerve, with donations pouring in. The Koori Mail has raised more than a million dollars. To see that kind of kindness and generosity being given to our communities is, is really heartwarming. Now we're in a position to really change people's lives and really support our Indigenous organisations and community groups here in this region to also then go on to provide extra support to our communities. Uncle Robert Corowa has just moved back into his home in Lismore, but it's riddled with mould. This is where the flood came, in my house. He's doing what he can to get rid of it, but he's worried about how it's affecting his health. I've been camping in shed at the back of somebody's house up in Ganelabar. Also, I've been camping in uh, couch surfing on people's couches. I'm 70 years old and it's been wearing me down and I can imagine how it's worn down a lot of other people. He's had to replace smashed windows and is trying to get other repairs done as soon as possible. It's been very, very tough. I didn't believe how tough it could be, but when you've lost everything, I mean completely everything, and you, it's uh, very shocking to the spirit when you can't even boil a cup of water to have a cup of tea. When you, and, and food, you've got nothing to cook. There's no fridge to keep anything. There's no stove to cook anything. The Cabo community is trying to look to the future. There's promising news with the New South Wales government committed to rebuilding. And more importantly, 190 people are home, so that's that's the way to start. But Chris Binge, the CEO of the Jali Aboriginal Land Council, who has been in negotiations with the government, says it's going to take years. We, we wake up every day knowing that today can only be better. Um, and I think, I think the bigger thing in, in the community is just trying to not look at it from a, um, a, a devastation point of view, but trying to look at it from, from hope because, you know, if we live in the devastation, then, then it's hard to see through to, the, through to the next phase. But if we can live in hope, knowing that tomorrow's going to be a bit better and, and more importantly, that out of, out of you know, destruction, um, good things can happen. Lorraine Anderson is holding on to hope. She's moved four times in the past few months and is looking forward to a new temporary village for the community in Mordell. We're like a big family, in other words, our community. Like, we all look out for each other and, you know, help one another and support each other. And I reckon being placed in Mordell is a good thing for our community and just until our homes get built till we go back to Cabotry Island. That's our main thought, just want to go home.
You're listening to NITV Radio and we'll be right back after this short break. Coming up in just a moment, my yarn with Cato Muir. He's the chair for the National Native Title Council. As we yarn about the significance of native title, and it was this time last week that it was Marbo Day, so I have a yarn about how Marbo Day has actually paved the way for native title across the nation. You'll meet Cato right after this. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. I'm Kato Muir. I'm from uh, the desert and goldfields regions of Western Australia. Uh, my language group, we're Ngalia language or, or dialect of the Manjigata peoples. And we have a various, um, oh, I suppose, straddle that country between Wangabe country and Murdo country. And you're the chairman for the National Native Title Council? Yes, sure. So I'm uh, currently chair of the National Native Title Council and also a co-chair of the First Nations Heritage Protection Alliance. Well, two really big roles. Firstly, what's it like being the chairman of the National Native Title Council? I imagine that's a massive job for you. Well, it's a major responsibility at the national level and I'm a member based on uh, my status as uh, through the PBC. So we're uh, member uh, organisations. There are two types of organisations that, uh, that are members of the National Native Title Councils, and that's the Native Title Services slash uh, rep bodies and land councils at one level, and then the prescribed body corporates or PBCs at the other level, which are basically the Native Title holders. So service bodies and native title holders. Wow, a big job indeed uh, that you do have. We're here today to talk about Marbo Day. Well, to me and, you know, to I think all uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia, as well as the rest of Australia, Marbo Day is possibly one of the most important days in Australian history um, because it finally acknowledged and recognised that Australia was not an empty land at the time of uh, settlement and that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been here uh, since time immemorial and uh, continue to have a presence on this land and are part of uh, the, you know, we we retain, I suppose, a uh, spiritual sovereignty to uh, the Australian landscape. And it did indeed pave the way forward uh, to make way for native title in this country. Can you explain how that happened, please, Cato? Yeah, sure. So um, native title is the recognition by the British or the English common law, which is the law that's been transplanted into Australia and uh, is currently the law of the Australian state. Um that law has a uh, an opportunity in it to recognise rights and interests that come from other jurisdictions or other laws. And through the Marbo decision, the High Court recognised that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hold rights and interests that come from our traditions, our laws and our customs as peoples 
and we continue to enjoy those laws today where they have not been extinguished by the actions of the state. So that's the first step. Second step is that the government of the day um, <clears throat> introduced the Native Title Act uh, to recognise and protect Native Title, but then also to allow for dealings in Native Title that um, it means we have uh, opportunities to seek a, an official determination of Native Title in our favour um, for the government to be able to take our land and give it to third parties uh, with our consent. And if it does not happen with our consent or if there is an impact on our native title rights, it sets out a compensation regime or a process by which we will be compensated when the government takes our land and gives it to third parties. So that's basically... There's, there's three steps to this process. One was the actual recognition of native title, which uh, Mabo uh, identified. Um, the other bit was that the Racial Discrimination Act introduced in 1975 meant that the government could not just take away our recognition um, willy-nilly. It had to follow a process and the Native Title Act, which was introduced in 1994, um, set out a process by which um, there's determinations of native title, taking our native title and giving it to third parties, agreements on how that could happen, and uh, compensation for if or when uh, that had happened without our consent. So that's in a nutshell what uh, native title basically is and how it operates in Australia. Um, can you share with us some latest news from the National Native Title Council, please, Cato? Yes, sure. So the, the big news, of course, is that we're all here at, uh, the, at Twin Waters in, uh, on Gubby Gubby Country in the Sunshine Coast of Queensland for the IATSA Summit, which includes the uh, National Native Title uh, conference. So that's the big news. And then, of course, uh, part of what the National Native Title Council are doing here is participating in the summit. Uh, we've got a lot of um, native title holders from all around the country uh, coming to uh, this conference. And one of the things that we're here to talk about is the First Nations uh, Heritage Protection Alliance, mm -hmm. where it's formed from the, you know, the response to the Jugan uh, disaster and the damage done at Jugan. And the Heritage Protection Alliance was uh, formed shortly after that. And what we've been doing is uh, creating and promoting um, uh, information and knowledge and relationships around better standards for protection of cultural heritage. So we've just launched a new website called the um, at culturalheritage.org.au and that's basically the First Nations People's Cultural uh, Heritage website. And through that, what we're doing is we've negotiated with the four, previous government 
we negotiated a co-design uh, process uh, around reforms at the national level to cultural heritage protection laws. And at this summit, we're talking to uh, people from all around Australia to invite them to engage in this process of co-designing uh, the next um, enactment of cultural heritage protection laws in Australia. Yeah, I suppose my uh, summing up is to say that the the summit here has been very informative, very helpful. There are people from all over the country coming to this uh, summit and listening, learning, contributing. Uh, and I think what we're really excited to do is to look at, you know, we've, we're just celebrating this week 30 years since the Mabo decision and it's time to look at what the next 30 years uh, might look like uh, for Aboriginal people. And one of the big sessions today, for instance, was a discussion around the treaty processes that are going on in in uh, Australia um, mm. and building, you know, step-by-step step from uh, local, regional levels, um, the need for our mobs to have treaties between ourselves and also for our mobs to um, start articulating and setting out what it is that we want to have in terms of our relationship with the settler society. So that, you know, there's some really high-level conversations and discussions going on and um, it's, a, it's really a privilege to be part of that process. Sounds really good. Kate O'Muir, um, Chairman for the National Native Title Council, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Kaylee. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Well, as you've heard today on the program, last Friday marked 30 years since the historic Mabo decision was made overturning Terra Nullius. To mark the anniversary, musician Jesse Lloyd has released a new album of work that has been created to celebrate the rich history of the Torres Strait Islands. It is a result of years of hard work with songkeepers, knowledge holders who want to pass on the traditional songs to future generations. My name is Jessie Lloyd and my family are the Gaia family from Palm Island, uh, North Queensland. The Island Songs Project is, is the, the second project, the first being Mission Songs Project. And there was so much content that was either from the Torres Straits or connected to the Torres Straits that I wanted to do a separate album that really um, showcased the, the musical history of and the musical influences from the Torres Straits. Uh, I would define the album by saying that it's, um, I, just, I don't know, I just love it. It's sunshiny, it's warm, it's, it's tropical. It really reflects how I feel feel about the songs and how I feel about the place and, and the families and the community. It's so warm and welcoming and, and bubbly. What I hope my family takes from this album is um, pride. 
cultural pride. My dad, who's, who's Joe Geyer, has done a lot of this work himself in terms of his generation and, and his musical contribution. Um, my grandfather was Albie Geyer. He was the conductor of the Palm Island Brass Band um, and also part of the Palm Island 1957 strike. So um, I'm just sort of, you know, a link in a chain. And uh, I hope that my family um, contribute to this chain as well. So the musical legacy continues. I think there's amazing stories in these songs and amazing clues and, and, and insights into Australian history that, that isn't really known or isn't really remembered. There are t 10 songs in the album that have great histories behind them, but um, there are also some songs that didn't make the list. Uh, sometimes uh, I asked for permission for a song and, and the answer was no. Uh, sometimes um, I just didn't solve the riddle of the song and it was not ready to, to I guess, for, or I'm not ready to, to put it out there um, because it's inconclusive. One of my favourite songs, Black Swanner, a song about a pearl lugger and part of the pearling industry. But I extend the story about telling the story of the Torres Strait Islander men who went west to Western Australia and they dived for pearls in Broome and also helped build the railway track from Perth up to Broome. So, you know, this that's how the songs kind of live beyond. For me these songs are timeless. These are cultural songs. This isn't this is an out it's not an album to try and get likes or on the charts or anything like this. This is about legacy. Um, these songs are a hundred years old, over a hundred years old, and for them to be sung for another hundred years we need to have multiple generations continu continuing them. I feel like a lot of people don't know why that Torres Strait flag is flying next to the Aboriginal flag and the Australian flag and, and this album is, is is that answer to that. What 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 is that flag? Why is it why is it there? And over the last hundred and fifty years there's been so much uh, value and contribution that the Torres Straits has brought in and even today I hope that this album showcases that contribution. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.